Today's scripture reading is from Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as the sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all, uh, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, to, be Christ. to Christ. Thanks, Josiah. Hey, good morning, everybody. Happy first Sunday of Advent. This is actually also the last Sunday in our fall series uh, that we've called uh, uh, Love Supreme, Anchor, Anchor Doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, next few weeks after this one, we're going to do a miniature uh, Advent series. But uh, today, I get to um, give the message that I think is the most fun to give, uh, even though you may or may not think it's the most fun to receive. But it's about the assurance that God gives us in His promises that He is uh, with us for the long haul. Uh, and uh, so we've called today's message Safe in God's Keeping. And uh, I'll start this way. When we announced that my wife Patty was pregnant with our first daughter, um, you know, you would expect your own parents to say, oh, we've been waiting for this day, so excited. Yes. First, word out of my, first words out of my dad's mouth were, you better start saving money. <laughs> he said, each child going to cost you about $1 million. And uh, that's not necessarily true. I mean, some of you spend a million dollars on raising your children, and others have spent a lot less. It's not really about how much money, as much as it is about the fact that when you decide that uh, you want to raise a child, uh, you realize soon enough that you have to restructure everything in your life in order to do it well. You have to change your sleep patterns. You have to change uh, what you do with your evenings. You have to change what you do with your weekends and how you take your, your trips. And uh, you have to rearrange your finances for sure. But how absurd would it be if our 19-year-old daughter now uh, called us and said, I have bronchitis. Doctor says it's a $40 copay to, you know, go in and get the, you know, antibiotic prescribed. And that's another five bucks, you know, to, to chip in for the antibiotics. And then it happens again three months after that. And then another, another time, six, seven months after that. And, and, and I would say to her as her dad, you know, that's a $40 copay three times. I'm done. No more. I'm out. You're on your own. I mean, how crazy would that be? since I've already rearranged my whole life for the last 19, almost 20 years in order to raise her up, 
How much more am I going to be willing to drop 40 bucks on a copay, right? And yet, this is the way that we associate uh, uh, our relationship with God, um, you know, with, 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 with just our doubts. Uh, we wonder if God is really in it for the long haul. We wonder if there's something that's going to push him over the edge, a straw that's going to break the camel's back that's going to make him want to peace out on us and to say, look, I'm, I'm done running this race with you. You're on your own from this point forward. You know, our hearts doubt that God is always going to be there. If we slip up, if we stray, if we get distracted, if He gets distracted, if we rebel, the doctrine, the historic doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and again, I'm, I'm sorry for keep, keep you know, continuing to give you a different title, but I think the better way of saying it is God's perseverance with the saints, God's perseverance with His children, uh, is one of the most comforting doctrines uh, and teachings of Scripture when we have those fierce doubts that assail us. You know, Paul wrote from jail in Philippians, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Scripture also talks about how God is not only the author, but also the perfecter or the finisher of our faith. And here he's saying similar things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. He who rearranged everything in order to raise us up as his daughters and sons, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Then he goes on, nothing in all creation can separate us from his love. Reminds me of uh, that hymn, How Firm a Foundation, where it says, that soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, no, will not desert to its foes, that soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. We're talking about the same kind of assurance here that Jesus provided when He said, nothing can snatch you out of the hands of My Father. Not even the Father can snatch you out of the hands of the Father once you're in, because that would be contradictory to His own faithful character, and it would contradict the nature of His persevering love. And so, I want to talk about how nothing can separate us under three headings. Neither your present, nor your past, nor your future will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ. So, not your present. So, the situation that Paul is speaking into uh, is uh, first century Rome. And in first century Rome, uh, it was not safe to publicly identify with Jesus Christ as His, uh, you know, recipients of, of His letters were publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. And so, the consequence of this is what he writes about, you know, his own life, his own autobiography when he says we're facing persecution and danger not in spite of our faith in Christ, but because of it. And then he goes on in verse 36, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Th these are grim circumstances. 
Did you know that 11 of, of, of Jesus' 12 disciples died as martyrs because of their faith in, in Jesus? A few years after the writing of this letter, the Roman emperor Nero decided that he was going to start burning Christians alive for sport, just for sheer entertainment. You know, this and, and so many other scriptures and, and just history itself verifies that, that, that being connected to Jesus Christ in no way is going to protect any of us from the hardships and difficulties of life. In fact, it, it may escalate our suffering sometimes because to follow Jesus is to take up a cross daily. You know, Jesus said it himself, in this world you will have trouble. This was true for, for Job. This is the oldest book in the Bible. The book of Job was written before the book of Genesis even was written. And there are two things about Job that become clear very early on in the story. And the first is that he is the most righteous, godly, faithful person in the whole land. That's how God describes him in the book. And the other part is that he experiences some of the worst suffering imaginable, and the suffering just seems to keep piling on one episode after another. Terrorists come in, and they, in one day, kill all ten of his children. They destroy his property. They finish off his lucrative business, and his business doesn't exist anymore. And then after that, Job's health uh, becomes compromised. It says he's afflicted from head to toe with, with sores, or the word, you know, trans, some translation is boils. And, and, and then after that, the one person who's supposed to walk, you know, with him through this and comfort him through these afflictions and, and be together with him, because they're both sharing all of these losses, said, you know, this God that you take such comfort in, I'm out. I'm done. I'm done. Love God? I hate Him. Curse God and die, Job's wife says. And, and Job, to the contrary, when all of these things happen, it says that Job didn't utter a single negative word against God. Instead, he, he fell on his face, worshiped God, and, and, and said these famous words, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You hear a little bit of an echo of this in Paul when he says, we're facing death all day long, and we're more than conquerors. You know, the Apostle John says the same thing probably somewhere in his 90s when he writes the book of Revelation. He's the only surviving disciple, but he's in prison on a remote island not unlike Alcatraz called Patmos for his faith, and he says, we're overcomers. Do these guys need to read some Nietzsche or something in order to, to get back in touch with the reality of, of the groan of the world in which we live? Or listen to some Bon Iver or something? And yet it stands. You know, Job's wife versus Job and John and Paul, was she seeing things correctly? Or was it her vision that was truly being impaired? Was it, in fact, Job and John and Paul who had actually been given corrective lenses for their souls to be able to interpret the times and their sufferings and their sorrows 
rightly. Was it not them who were given spiritual wisdom to understand that if they were able to know and see everything that God does, they would realize that there's much more than meets the eye. They would realize that, yes, God gave the devil some rope to work with Job, but, but the truth of the matter, and, and we know this in retrospect, is that God only gave the devil enough rope with which to hang himself, and he was hung by the very faithfulness of Job, who he was try- whose faith he was trying to destroy. Screwtape loses in the end. See, for, for Job, though, it wasn't all, praise the Lord, happy clappy, pie-in-the-sky, sappy, sentimental, Christmas American faith. It wasn't that at all. Because if you go through the story, you read the whole book, you see that there are times as well when, when, when Job's suffering is tearing his guts out as he's trying to find some answers, trying to make sense of, of what's going on in, in this story of God in which his story has been embedded. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't match up with the goodness and love of God that he's always assumed. And he starts to doubt and to struggle, and he gets in shouting matches with God, and he he says things like, God, you mock the despair of the innocent. Where are you? What are you up to? You know, on the same level of irreverence as the Psalms. It's not irreverent at all. You know, Job's wife is one and done. Hers is a very unholy, ungodly cynicism where she says, I'm finished. I've lost control of my life. God doesn't love me. It's clear. I'm done. To hell with him. But Job keeps wrestling. He keeps going to the mat. Yeah, he says some things that God will later correct him for. What do you call that? You call that a relationship. If you've never found yourself pushing back on God because of suffering and because of the groan that that, that Paul talks about earlier on in this chapter, Maybe you're still in the superficial territory. Even Jesus learned faithfulness from the things that He suffered. Even Jesus cried out to God from the cross, why have you forsaken me? Directly quoting the 22nd Psalm, by the way. But in the long term, we see several things develop for hearts that are surrendered to the Spirit's work in the climate or ecosystem of, that includes suffering. One is friendship with Jesus. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? When he said, friendships are formed when one person looks at another and says, oh, you too? You, know, you, you graduated from this university too? You, you've voted for this candidate too? I thought I was the only one. You know, you, you like Pappy Van Winkle? Oh, me too. (laughs) You're a songwriter? Oh, you too? You're a songwriter? And so on, right? You've had miscarriages too? You've been anxious and depressed too? Hey, can we walk together? Community is formed, solidarity and friendship are formed with Jesus. 
through suffering, right? Because it's even Jesus who learned character, who learned obedience through the things that He suffered. You know, to suffer is to move beyond a superficial, sappy, sentimental knowledge of Jesus to a visceral, personal one that would drive Paul even from jail to say, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. He doesn't say, I want suffering. He's not being masochistic or anything. He's, he says, I want to know the fellowship that comes through suffering, the fellowship with Christ, the suffering servant. The other thing that happens in the ecosystem that includes suffering for surrendered hearts is the de development and cultivation of character. Paul writes in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings because they produce perseverance, character, and hope. What, what Paul's saying is that through suffering, you can become a better quality human with a better quality soul. Your, your, your fragile soul can start to assume solid attributes through the refining fire of suffering. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the, the expert on grief, I, I'm not sure if she has a faith commitment, but she says some things that are very wise. One of them is this. She wrote, the most beautiful people are the ones who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of those depths. So, I want to speak to those of you who are students, especially middle school and high school. Um, I don't know uh, if you have this experience, but in high school, there was often this feeling of, of being an outsider looking in that I would experience. And I don't know if people saw this in me or not, but I always felt like kind of an outsider. I always felt nervous around things like cool and popular. I, I was always a little bit jittery when, when I sensed that I was in the presence of a clique. And, you know, I look back on my middle school and high school years, and those that I've kept touch with, those whose lives I'm still on some level engaged with, it turns out that the ones who were known as the cool, popular kids who formed cliques and excluded others have actually ended up, for the most part, struggling the most as adults. And the ones who have moved forward in life and, and, and have become more solid human beings have tended to be the ones who knew what it was like to be left out, who maybe even knew what it was like to experience bullying and being excluded. See, because in those experiences, there's this thing called compassion and kindness that can be formed. Because this experience of, of being turned into a loner, you don't want anybody else to have that experience, and so you end up being the kind of person who speaks words that build up instead of tear down. See, the more solid souls later in life tend to be the ones that were treated in the harsher ways younger. And, and you know, this is it's a general rule of thumb, but it's, it's true in, in my experience when I look back that, that cool may win high school, but kindness wins life. Even Jesus learned obedience this way. 
The other thing is that all suffering for the child of God has a shelf life. This is how Paul can say we're more than conquerors when he's about to, you know, to get his head lopped off or, or burned at the stake or whatever, you know, the popular execution method was of the day. He was still able to take the long view to know that in the end, God accomplishes justice for every square inch of His universe. And we can even start seeing this now in retrospect, said this before, because we're naming our sons after Paul and we're naming our dogs after Nero. Proud empires always collapse. Proud, narcissistic, power-mongering empires always collapse. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, fall of Rome, who knows what's next? And if I don't really receive any relief in this one life I've been given, Paul says to this, I am sure not even that will separate you from the love of God. Why? Got to say it again. You know, in town, we, we sung your song, Jeremy, your, your, your rendition of, uh, you, know, you know, bid my anxious fears goodbye. Um, and I was just sitting there thinking, wow, this is what Paul is after here, bidding our anxious fears goodbye. Why? Because fear is based on what we imagine about the future. And yet, this is the imagination that's based on things that are true, that the gospel has given us, that your long-term worst-case scenario, 100 years from now, the worst that it can be is resurrection and everlasting life and perpetual everlasting bliss. That's as bad as it's going to be for you 100 years from now. And 1,000 years, and when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Your best days are always future in Christ. So when suffering comes, if you're tempted to say, can God possibly love me? Don't let suffering determine your view of God's love. Please let God's love determine your view of suffering. Neither your present nor your past can separate you from God's love. If you knew my history, though, if you knew the things that I've said, if you knew the things that I've done, the things that I've thought, you'd know that I'm disqualified. I am one of the disqualified ones. I have to be. See, in the same way that suffering would lead Job's wife to hate God, sin may lead us to hate ourselves. Both are sort of reverse sides of the same coin. Both are lies that persuade us away from God. Verse 33, though, who shall bring any charge, Paul says, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Or as John says in 1 John 3.20, even when our own hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. I love what Brennan Manning wrote in Vulgar Grace. He wrote this as an alcoholic. My life, he said, is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wage as the grinning drunk who shows up at ten till five. It works without asking anything of us. It is not cheap, but it is free. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try and find something or someone that grace cannot cover. Brennan Manning doesn't know what I've done, but Jesus Christ does. 
Jesus Christ knew what Paul had done. You remember that? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul refers to his former life before conversion to Christ as that of a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, a bully. Or you've got David, the abuser of power, the sex predator, maybe with a button behind his desk, whose behavior would appropriately outrage the masses. And yet, who is David referred to, in, or who is Jesus referred to in the Gospels? How does he refer to himself but as the son of David? Unbelievable, vulgar grace. Peter the betrayer, Matthew the, the crook, Mary Magdalene the prostitute, need I continue to persuade you out of your self-loathing that you falsely think keeps you away from the love of God. Here is reality. God loves to forgive you more than you love to be forgiven. God loves to forgive you more than you love to sin. As one of my mentors in grace likes to say, so put that in your pipe and smoke it. We have to inhale this in one way or another. We have to take it in. What about the unpardonable sin? What about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about in Matthew 12? I will agree, the most terrifying words, in my opinion, that have ever been uttered in the history of the world were when Jesus said, all words spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven either in this, this age or in the age to come. What are we to do with that? You know, John Bunyan was tortured emotionally for three years, deadly afraid that he had committed this sin and that there was no way back into the favor of God. Scott Sauls had a similar season in his life. Six months or so, I was emotionally tortured, fearing that I had committed the unpardonable sin. And what I learned during that season is that the original Greek matters. There are very important things that can get lost in translation, such as the words speaks against in the original Greek is in the indicative mood and the active voice, which in every instance must communicate continuous, nonstop action. Whoever continues and never stops speaking against the witness of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the only hope in life and in death. Whoever continues all the way to the end to speak that way will not and cannot be forgiven. Another important thing I learned through this season of emotional torture is that the only people who should tremble about the unpardonable sin are those who never tremble about it. Where there's no fear of God before their eyes. You see, 
if you are worried, afraid that you have committed this sin, it is a sure sign that you haven't. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, Paul writes, shall be saved. No ifs, ands, or but. If we confess our sins, John writes, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why, why wouldn't it say faithful and merciful or faithful and loving to forgive us our sins? Because justice only demands one payment, just one, and it's already been made. As John Newton, the hymn writer, wrote, when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. Case closed. This language of Jesus interceding for us, it's lawyerly language, attorney language. He's a defender, an advocate, always living, it says, to intercede for us. Their debt's already been paid. They are liberated. They are free. Nor your future, nor, it says, things to come will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You can trust the future, but what if I slip beyond return? I can trust God, but I don't think I can trust myself. And here's where I think Paul would want us to hear that the grace that saves us is also the grace that is going to keep us. Remember, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith, the faith that he will finish the work that he has begun in us until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel have written this wonderful book about the heart of a leader, and what they've done is, that, you know, they, they went around and interviewed, um, you know, several well-known Christian leaders who are finishing well. They're older, older in life, Eugene Peterson and uh, Marva Dawn and J.I. Packer, among many others, but one of the couples that they interviewed uh, was uh, James and Rita Houston. James is the founder of, uh, of Regent University in Vancouver. It was just wonderful scholarship uh, and, and gospel emphasis coming out of that, that university. But, but uh, Rita has uh, Alzheimer's, and one of the, the questions that they asked to those that they were interviewing is, is there any, are there any fears that you carry with you older in life? And Rita's answer, she says, this is always my answer to that question. We actually talk about it in our home sometimes, because as one who has Alzheimer's, my greatest fear is that I will forget Jesus. And then James chimes in and he says, yeah, but whenever she says that, I respond back to her. It's not whether or not you remember him that ultimately matters. What matters is that he is going to remember you, and he's never going to forget you. You can trust the future because you can't change the past. Have you noticed how Paul is speaking in the past tense here? We're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. This past tense language is, is given to comfort us. The same thing is going on in Ephesians 2. In, in the but God language, Paul says God has raised us with Christ Jesus. He has already resurrected us. He has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In remembering 
God's past, we can be certain about our future in Christ. You know, so fixed is your future in Christ that God has already published the book and, and, and written the last chapters in the past tense. You know, those of you, you know, you big Tolkien, Lord of the Ring, Rings buffs, I mean, you, 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 you watch the movies, right? And you know, you're engaging with the tension and the drama and the threats that, 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 that Frodo and, and, and Gandalf and Samwise are, are facing as they, you know, try to, you know, throw this, you know, ring of power into, to, you know, the abyss of mortar so it won't have its grip over them anymore. And you're engaged with the drama, and they're always on the brink of death, but there's also a part of you that's chill in the first couple of movies. Why? Because you've already read the last book. You've already read it. You know how it ends. You've read the whole trilogy, and so, so you're both engaged and chill because you know how it's going to end. Everlasting bliss, long-term worst-case scenario, resurrection, everlasting life, best days always in the future. And so, realize the trilogy that God has already written and published. We're living in book one or book two somewhere, or maybe somewhere in the first half of book three. And, 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 and when we are tempted in, in book one, book two, or the first half of book three to ask the question, can God possibly love me with all this suffering? Can God possibly accept me with all this guilt? Will God possibly keep me with all of this weakness, we only need to remember the question that Samwise Gamgee asked to Gandalf, which Gandalf answered in the affirmative. Gandalf, does this mean that everything sad will come untrue? And the unequivocal answer is, yes, it will, because nothing in all creation, neither your present nor your past, nor your future will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Thank you, Father. Paul was convinced. Would you convince us too? Amen.